0: Thank you, Emily. Great job. I'm so thankful for that. And you can just stay in First Samuel chapter 12 if you want to. That's where we're going to be all day today is in First Samuel chapter 12. And you'll remember last week we were in First Samuel chapter 8, so we've jumped forward quite a bit. And I'm going to tell you the story and the things that took place in between as we... Uh, as we talk about this today, so we'll take a look at that together. But uh, I'd love for you to just stay in First Samuel for a bit. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question. And just, um, I think I know the answer to this already. Uh, have you ever, have you ever made a bad thing worse? <laughs> See, you laugh like you've done it, so I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm glad in good company. I can remember when I was a kid, when I was about eight, I played soccer. And if any of you know me, uh, you know that I now today run only when chased. And so I'm not, uh, I was not, I was cut out for other things and other sports, but definitely not soccer. And so I was that kid in soccer that they would put on the bench a lot. So they let, I was a little fat kid, and so it was awesome. I was a little round mound of sound. It was great. And... uh One day, a lot of kids were sick, and so I was there, and they needed a goalie, and so they put me in as goalie, and that was awesome because, hey, I didn't have to run. And so um, here I am as goalie, and they, uh, they drive the ball down the field. And I'm thinking to myself, Scott Roberts, who was my best friend at the time, he's one of those tall, lanky guys who could run 1,000 miles per hour. I thought for sure he's going to get it there. He's going to get there before anything could possibly happen. And, uh, but no, that's not at all what happened. And so they come running up to the goal, and they shoot it right. I mean, I see exactly where it's going. And so I dive in front of the ball, and, and I landed on the ball. And I mean, just right on top of it. And fortunately, it didn't burst the ball. I was excited about that. But it didn't burst. And I'm thinking to myself, I am the man. They're going to say, I'm the man. Now, right now, I have to tell you that the score was 0-0 zero to zero at this point. So we were tied game, just a few minutes left. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. I'm the man. It's a winning shot. They, I just saved it. So I stand up, and I'm all proud, and I'm excited. And I see Scott kind of on the other side. And he's about at midfield. And thinking, if I can drop kick this to Scott, he's going to take it down there and score. And so I throw the ball up in the air, and I kick it. And I watch it. Huh. I scored the winning shot for the game. It's for the other team. That was awesome. And then, um, so my coach, who regretted putting me in, obviously, can you make a bad thing worse, I go up to the coach, man, coach, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't worry, don't worry. You don't sweat much for a fat kid. You'll get over it. And I was like... (laughs) I'm not sure that's the advice that I needed. And so, you know, you've you've probably been there with me. Have you ever made a bad thing worse? I remember a time with my iPhone. I had an iPhone. I dropped it. I cracked the screen. You've probably been there where you've done that. You get frustrated. You get mad. And then I'm just geeky enough to think, oh, I can fix this. And so I bought a new screen, and I'm following all the YouTube instructions and step-by-step, and everything is just going perfect. And I go to push the screen back on at the very end. And as I push it on... It cracks in half, but this time it didn't just crack the screen in half. It also cracks the button too. And so now the phone is worse off than it was. And so I've just now broken my phone again. And that was a pleasant day. I promise I didn't cuss much. And um, <laughs> I was frustrated. So that just that idea, have you, have you made a bad decision worth? Have you ever made a, good, a bad thing worse? And I'm just going to give you one more example. And maybe you've lived this one too. I had a friend who... Um, He was excited because he'd finally gotten a credit card. And so he was just so excited about all the things he could do with this credit card. And then he comes to me and says, I'm I'm struggling a little bit because I think I've maxed my credit card out. And then he was all excited about this new idea he had. I maxed out my credit card. So look what I did. They gave me another one. And then he maxed that card out. And I was like, oh, buddy, you got to stop doing that. You're in deep yogurt. He goes, no, no, really, this is amazing. They gave me... They gave him a third one. He says, here's what I'm doing. I'm using this one to pay off this one while I'm spending on this one. And I'm paying this one to pay that one. And he just had this really intricate plan of how he was going to use these three cards. to. And wow, that's crazy. And then he gets to the point where they're all maxed out. And he goes, well, now guess what I've done. This is brilliant. I've taken out a debt consolidation loan. So now I just have one payment and three totally empty credit cards. And he was just so excited about that. I was like, you're... Bless your heart, right? You know, (laughs) um, um, it's possible for us to make a really bad thing worse, isn't it? So, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and like I said, we're in chapter 12 today, we're actually covering really. 9 through 14, but we're going to narrow the focus down to that section that Emily read just a second ago uh, because it really sums up kind of the sentiment and the idea and the principles that we need to see really well. But you'll remember in chapter 8 last week, the children of Israel had come to Samuel and said, Make us a king. We need to have a king. Now, before that time, if you'll remember, uh, the the 12 tribes of Israel, they didn't really have a central government as they know it. They were ruled by the traditions and the laws of Moses. And they had judges that God would raise up. And God had fought all of their battles for them. And God had provided for them. And the children of Israel had gone through these times, these ups and downs where they're really close to God. And then these moments when they're far from him. And as they would get far from him, uh, other nations would come in and would, would bother them and would take them captive and would steal their stuff and attack them and... And then God would raise up a deliverer. That deliverer was a judge like Samson or, or, uh, or Gideon. Those are some judges you may know. And, and Samuel technically is the last judge of the nation of Israel because the children of Israel rise up and they say, I want to have a king. I want to be like everybody else. And see, here's that problem. They were already doing a bad thing, right? They had already taken a trip down this path that drew them away from God. They were already beginning to worship other gods. They were beginning to worship false idols. They were already doing so many of the other things that the other nations were already doing. Their heart was already drawing far away from God. And so this idea that they would have a king... It's just sort of the icing on the cake, right? Hey, we've done everything else like everyone else. We want to be just like everyone else. God, give us a king that we can control or a king that we can blame. They didn't really say it to God. They said it to God's representative, Samuel. And then Samuel, who was frustrated, said it to God. And you'll remember from chapter 8, Samuel says, here's all the things the king will do to you if we give you a king that's not God. And he, he just went through these things. And he's going to take your sons and daughters He's going, to take your, he's going to divide your family. He's going to take your sons to war and your daughters to work. He's going to take the best of your stuff. He's going to tax the first of your income. He's going to do all of these things. So he made all these promises, and still the children of Israel said, Yeah, give us a king. And so what happens next in chapter 9 and 10 is the story shifts away from Samuel, and it shifts to a man named Saul, who is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Saul is tall, and he's handsome. And he's sort of Chris Hemsworth, you know. He's just this big guy with lots of muscles, you know. He's a, And, and so he looks like a king. And Saul is out doing his, his father's work. Uh, his father had donkeys, and some of the donkeys were missing. I don't know if you've ever had to search for a donkey before or not, but that's what Saul was doing. He was out searching for a donkey. Um, seems like there's a joke in there somewhere that I'm not going to make. But he was out searching for a donkey, and he couldn't find him. And so his buddy that's with him says, Well, there's a there's a prophet nearby here. We should go see him and, and see what he says, where, where where these donkeys may be. And so eventually in chapters nine and ten, Saul and Samuel find one another. And Saul tells, or excuse me, Samuel tells Saul, he says, Don't worry about the donkeys. The donkeys are already home. Now your dad's kind of getting worried about you because now you're the donkey that's missing. And so he's he's concerned about you, but don't worry about that. Because there's something more important that I need to tell you. I need to tell you that God has selected you to be the first king of Israel. So that happens in chapters 9 and chapters 10. And so how would you feel if someone came to you? You know, you're just out doing your daily business. You're just doing what you normally do. You, know, you go to your job, you do your thing. But you come across some pastor and he comes to you and says, Hey, I got a special message for you. You're supposed to be the king. I mean, how would that make you feel? Um, I had a professor who used to say it's good to be the king because you kind of get to do what you want, or at least that's the perceived idea. But you get to chapters 11 and 12, and you start seeing that this is not really an honor that Saul was really that excited about. When it comes time for Samuel to bring all the nation of Israel together to crown their new king... He calls all of the different tribes together, and by lot, he chooses them down and kind of down-selects them until you get to the the tribe of Benjamin, and then he down-selects by families. And now it's supposed to be this moment that you would, here's your king, the king that you ask for, and he's tall, and he's handsome, and he's strong, and he looks like a fighter. He looks like a king is supposed to look, except they can't find him. Why can't they find him? Well, because he's hiding in the luggage. There's all these carts with luggage, and he's hiding among the luggage because he's afraid to step forward and do the thing that the children of Israel demanded that he do, and to do the thing that really God has said, okay, I'm going to let you do what you, I'm going to give you what you ask for. Remember, we said it's dangerous when God gives into our desires sometimes. Well, I'm going to let you have what you ask for. So here's this man who God has said They'll, he'll be your king, but he's kind of he's afraid at this moment. I don't know if he's really a coward, but he's acting in a cowardly way during this time. And it's not long after that that another nation, the nation of the Ammonites, they rise up. And they attack the children of Israel. And as they attack the children of Israel, they're like, hey, guess what? We've got a king. And, and it's not long in chapters 12 and 13, it's not long, um, 11, 12, and 13, it's not long till Saul begins to function just like a king. And he begins to fulfill every promise that Samuel That God made through Samuel to the children of Israel. Here's what the king's going to do. He's going to divide your families. The Ammonites attack. He starts taking the sons to war. He starts putting the daughters to work. He starts taking the best of their stuff. He starts taxing the new work that they have. And it's just not long before this brand new king begins functioning exactly like... God said, now there was a family, there was one group that decided not to go out to battle with the Ammonites. And so uh, all of the nation of Israel, when the battle was over and they had won, they're praising the new king, King Saul, and they come back and they say, these men, they didn't go fight with us, we should do something about that. And so this is kind of King Saul's first opportunity to act with uh, some nobility and he actually does. He's not acting as a coward in this moment. He's actually acting with some nobility. And he looks to the, to the men who didn't fight in this battle with the Ammonites. And he forgives them. And everybody's like, yay, you're an incredible king. And they just kind of they, they lift him up and, and they praise him. But then they see in chapters 13 and 14. And it's something that we're going to see over and over and over again in the heart of the kings of Israel. They're going to see these moments where instead of doing what God chooses for them, instead of following hard after God, what they do is they follow hard after the crowd. Instead of viewing their faith as crucial, they view their faith as convenient. And the convenience isn't measured by what did God say. The convenience is measured by what are the people around me saying. And so not long after this battle with the Ammonites, we begin to see Saul make these very diverse decisions that aren't based on what God would have him do. They're based on what man would have him do. And remember we said this last week, and I just want to remind us of it, that, that, that the leaders that we choose, the leaders that we have, are as much a reflection of us as we are a reflection of them. And I just kind of challenged us with that idea that if we want better leaders, maybe we need to be better people. If what we want are godly leaders, well, maybe we need to be godly people. If we want leaders who consider their faith to be crucial instead of convenient, well, maybe we should be those people who consider our faith to be crucial instead of convenient. And we see it in the life of Saul because there's this moment when before the next battle, he's supposed to wait for Samuel to show up. And he's waiting because before the battle happens, God has said, I want you to offer up a sacrifice, an, an offering. And Saul chooses not to wait. I'm the king. It's good to be the king. I can do what I want. But in that moment, he didn't obey the king of kings. He disobeyed the king of kings. And he offered up a sacrifice that wasn't the one that God intended. And then out of that, he starts making some foolish laws. Foolish laws end up affecting his son. Hey, nobody needs to eat before you go out to this battle. Well, his son is the one who eats. Didn't realize there was a law, Dad. I had some honey. Sorry. Well, now what are we supposed to do? You broke the law. Now I need to punish my own son. So here Saul is set to punish his own son. And the people rise up and say, oh, don't do that. Don't punish him. He's done a valiant thing today. Jonathan had gone out and won a big battle. And so now we see foolish laws and we see an inconsistent practice and an enforcement of those laws. And we see all of that as a result of this beginning of Saul not saying my faith is crucial but saying my faith is convenient. Of Saul saying I'm not terribly interested in doing it God's way. Actually that's not true. I am interested in doing it God's way as long as it always benefits me. And as soon as it seems like it's not going to directly benefit me then maybe I need to do something else. Have you ever made a bad thing worse? Because the children of Israel, who once were not led by a king, are now led by a king who is inconsistent and a king who is unfaithful and a king whose heart is not fully God's. And they've made this bad thing worse. You see, that's where we get whenever we when we show up in First Samuel chapter twelve, as the last judge of Israel, as the prophet who anoints the the newest king of Israel, King Saul. Samuel is essentially in First Samuel twelve; he's giving his farewell address. And it's an interesting farewell address because normally when you give a farewell address, you're talking about, hey, here's all of our accomplishments together. This was so fun. This was so good. Look at all the great things God did. But in this farewell address, as Samuel is speaking, he's essentially saying, see, I told you so. I told you what was going to happen, didn't I? I told you he's going to divide your families. He's going to take your sons to war and your daughters to work. He's going to take the best of your stuff and tax all of your future work. He's going to do that. That's what a king does. And guess what? He did it. And you know why I knew that? It's not because I'm so smart. It's because God told me to tell you that. Why? Well, because God is your king. God is your king. He is the one who has fought all the battles for you. He is the one who has provided for you. And whether you follow the leadership of a single man or whether you choose to re- take responsibility for yourself and the people around you, there is still only one king, and that king is God. It's Jesus. It's God. And so there is no king but him. And so Samuel here in this farewell speech isn't talking about all of the accolades. He's actually reminding them of the things that have happened. And it's really interesting just before verse 19 where Emily started. Just before that happened, it's it's interesting because Samuel says, Here let me prove to you, let me prove to you how how powerful God is. I'm just gonna pray that 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 God would mess up your crops with a whole lot of rain and hail. And, and and you can just know that, I mean, you didn't believe me then, so let me just show you a little something, and now maybe you'll believe me because you see something, and that's exactly what happens. The rain comes, and the hail comes, and, and everything kind of just falls apart at that point, and and you see that happen. You see it happen right there, and all of a sudden, the children are, thank you, sir, for being here today. It's good to see you today. Um, and so... Uh, you see that happen and and they see that happen and they come to understand that everything Samuel said was true. And that's where you get to First Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. And so today, with all of that backstory, we're gonna ask three questions. And these are three questions that I hope that you will ask yourself. We're learning these three questions out of 1 Samuel chapter 12. But I hope that you'll ask these three questions yourself. And here's the reason why I want us to ask these three questions because you've been an active participant in every bad decision you've ever made. Isn't that true? You've been an active participant in every bad decision. You've ever made and and you might think that that's just really practical you might think that that's about today And that's about you know those credit cards or that iphone or that play that I missed You might think that it's about something practical like that But I got to tell you that it's so much bigger and, and more significant than that The decisions that you make have eternal consequences The path that you choose becomes the story that you tell and that is told about you and that story either magnifies the faithfulness of god or that story becomes something far more tragic, just like with the children of Israel in these moments. And so, is your faith crucial, or is it convenient? There are three questions today that we're going to see that I believe, if you'll learn to ask these questions on a regular basis, you'll find a way with these, with these answers to magnify God's faithfulness in your own life. That's, that's what we see. So the first question, here it is, it's really, really simple. Here's the first question. What will I confess? What will I confess? Look at First Samuel chapter 12, that very first verse we read just a minute ago. Look at what the children of Israel at this point now are willing to confess. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil. To ask for ourselves a king. What will I confess? I'm just going to let that sit with you for just a second. What are you willing to confess? To yourself. To others. Most importantly, to God. Rob, a few weeks ago, gave a really simple definition to confession that I really like. To confess is to tell. Confess equals tell. What are you going to agree with God about? What are you going to tell him? Yes, God, I agree with you. See, because here are the things, here's the thing that I think we struggle with when it comes to confession. Did you notice the depth of their confession when you read that? And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil. God, we've made a bad thing worse. You see, I think you know the temptations that trip you up the most right now. I think you know the confession that you need to make in regards to your own sin between you and God, possibly between you and somebody else. But I think you know the sin that you've committed, and here's the danger that I think we run into. I think we stop short of a full confession. Hey, God, I need you to forgive me for the way I treated her, but... And then we fill in the blank with our explanation or our excuse. God, I need you to forgive me for the way I've acted in this group of people. However, if you had just heard what they said, if you had just seen what they'd done, we, we qualify our confession. And it's almost like we downplay the severity of our sin. But that's not at all what the children of Israel are doing in this moment. We have sinned against you, God, and this is evil. And now, not only have we done this evil, evil, we've added to our evil. You know, I have a tendency when I talk about sin to say sin is that thing that no matter what you believe about the Bible, no matter what you believe about spirituality or church, no matter what your background, even if you claim to be an atheist, sin is the thing we can all agree on. And the reason why we can all agree on it because it is because at some point you've been hurt by someone else's sin and you've hurt someone else because of your own sin. You've experienced that. You may not call it sin. I sometimes will call it a mistake. Doesn't that sound softer? Doesn't that sound easier? Man, I just made a mistake. Yes, I did. And in the process, I hurt my wife. Man, I just, I said that thing and I shouldn't have said it. And in the process, I hurt my son. You know, I didn't do that thing I said I was going to do. I didn't keep my word. And because I failed in keeping my promise, I hurt that whole group of people. And I just, you know, I just made a mistake. But... Isn't the effect the same? Whether I soften my language or not, isn't the effect the same that because of my sin, someone else has been hurt? Because of my sin, I've hurt myself, my friend who had the three credit cards. Because of my sin, I've hurt myself and I've added to my problem one more problem and I just keep adding more problems and they keep compounding. And the reason why isn't because I'm not willing to confess. Maybe I know I have a problem, but maybe I'm not willing to confess fully. Maybe I'm not willing to recognize that this, this is sin and this is evil. And I need to, I need to, I need to agree with God. God, this is hurting me. And it's hurting the people around me. And more than anything, it's hurting you and it's causing me to be separated from you. And my relationship with you is completely broken. And I've added one evil on top of another evil. So that sometimes my confession falls so short of a legitimate confession. It's really an excuse or an explanation of why I should have been able to get away with it in the first place. That we actually take our confession and turn it into something evil. And we fool ourselves into believing that because I said, man, I'm sorry I got caught, God. That somehow now we're all in a better space and a better place with our Heavenly Father and with one another. Hey, I'm sorry that when I said that to you that you were offended and you, and you felt that way. Is that really a confession? I'm sorry you felt that way? No. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for how I acted to confess it's to tell it's to tell and it's to agree with God it's to agree with God that sometimes even when I want to do good things I don't do good things in Romans chapter 7 Paul is talking Paul was another man who used to be named Saul and Romans chapter 7 I just want to turn there real quick you don't have to turn there with me it's going to be up on the screen but Romans chapter 7 verses 18 and 19 Paul says for I know That nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And I don't know who you are. I don't know how long you've been to church or how many days you've heard messages just like this. Maybe this is your first time. But every one of us are guilty of that very thing. Romans chapter 7, the good thing I wanted to do, I didn't do. The bad thing I didn't intend to do, that's exactly what I did. And you know what? You've been hurt because of it. You've hurt someone else because of it. And the only possible resolution can't come from within you. It has to come from outside of you. It has to come through the faithfulness of God who would stand with you in the middle of your worst your worst decision on the worst day of your life and who would faithfully say forgiveness is available. And in that moment that you say what will i confess? How far will your confession go? What will i confess in that moment that you confess? God proves to be faithful to forgive. He's already made the way for your forgiveness. He's already paid the penalty. For the sin that you've committed. That's actually 1 John 1 1.9. It's a really familiar uh, verse to many people who attend church regularly. It says, 1 John 1 1.9 says that, that if we confess our sins. That he is faithful and he's just. He's faithful meaning he'll keep his promise. He's just meaning it's the right thing to do. He's not just letting people get away with it. Those people who have hurt you with their sin. When they confess and they ask forgiveness. They don't just get away with it. The penalty and the punishment of that sin is paid for. And it's justly paid for. How? Well, on the cross at Calvary, through the life of his son, Jesus. Jesus, when we say he died on the cross, what we mean is he took the punishment and the penalty for all of those sins that you and I need to confess. you got to confess. What are you holding back today? Like the children of Israel, are you willing to take your confession to its logical end? We have done evil. And now we've added to this evil even more evil. So that's the first question. What will I confess? The second question is where will I turn? Where will I turn? Look at verses uh, 21 and 22. 1 Samuel 12, verses 21 and 22. And do not, this is Samuel's instruction. And do not turn aside after empty things... That cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people, for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people, for Himself. I have a friend who always says, "You're just one right choice from the life you've always wanted, and you're one just bad one bad decision away from total devastation." It starts with that confession idea. What will you confess? But. The next thought there is, where will you turn? Again, this was a great simple definition of repentance that Rob offered a few weeks ago, that repents, it it equals turn. It, It equals turn. To turn away from your sin and yourself and to trust Christ only to turn away from the thing that's hurting you, that's killing you, that's breaking your relationships with God and with others, to turn away from those things and to turn to do things the way God would have you do them, to listen to his word, to submit to him, to follow him and to learn and to lean on him instead of your own understanding. And that friend of mine who says you're only one choice away from the life you've always wanted versus the life that causes you pain and suffering and misery is it's really as simple as this you are where you are today because of the choices you made yesterday and the choices you made before and the choices you made before that and tomorrow wherever you end up wherever you go tomorrow will be directly influenced by the choices that you make today where will you turn will you turn to trust Christ only Will you turn to honor the Father who has fought the battles for you and provided everything you need for, for life and godliness? Or will you turn to something, something that's empty? Did you notice that? First Samuel chapter, chapter twelve, verse twenty-one? And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. You see, when Samuel says this, he's actually challenging them very directly because for a generation, it seems, they had been turning aside to idols. The idol, that's the God you can control, right? The idol is the God you can blame. The idol is the dumb thing that you created with your own hands. And every time, frequently in Scripture, when an idol is referenced, it's referenced as something that is empty, And the reason why it's empty is because it's a statue. It can't do anything. It can't heal the sick. It can't raise the dead. It can't cast out demons. It can't provide. It can't fight. It can't love. It can't forgive. It's a piece of wood. It's empty. Where will you turn? And so he's challenging them directly on these idols that they have been serving. And while today we don't think we serve idols... I think I see us turn to empty things all the time. I mean, don't we do that? I mean, we, we, self, uh, we self-medicate with a lot of very socially acceptable things, right? We self-medicate with sports sometimes. And sometimes we self-medicate with movies and television. And sometimes we self-medicate with the right friendships and the right relationships. And sometimes we self-medicate with self-help books. And sometimes we medicate, self-medicate with, with just the right kind of exercise and just the right kind of diet. And we keep turning to all of these things that in the end... Some of them might be helpful, but in terms of our eternity and in terms of our relationships with one another, and most specifically our relationships with God, we turn to these empty things that really can't deliver and can't provide. And God says, you need to confess that where you are is a wrong place, and you got there one step at a time. And here's what you need to do next. You need to turn. You need to turn to me and one step at a time draw close to me. You know what the book of James says? The book of James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, that's the remarkable thing. This is how this magnifies God's faithfulness. Is that in that moment that you choose to turn away from the empty, to turn to God, he's right there. He's not the one who has moved. Maybe today you feel far from God. Maybe you feel a long way from Him. Maybe you've not heard His voice or sensed His call. Maybe you don't understand what this word says because every time you open it, it just feels so foreign to you because God just seems so far away. God is not the one who has moved. Yet, when we turn, God moves to be right by your side because He's the one who's moving us to turn, right? You see, God is the one who is faithful, and if we'll turn from the empty to trust him and follow him, in his faithfulness, he'll be right there by our side. It's another verse in Romans. It's Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 4, says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness, it's his affection for us that leads us to go, hey, Don't take one more step down that path. Take a step in the other direction. Come to me. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Will you repent? In his kindness today, he's brought you into this room with these people. I don't know what you need to confess. I'm not asking you to confess to me, but I know you need to confess to God. I'm not asking you to turn to me, but I am asking you to turn your face and your heart and your mind to God. Because that is the place where his faithfulness is found. What will you confess? Where will you turn? And here's the last question. Who will you trust? Who will you trust? And to keep that pattern of going, that confess equals tell, and repent equals turn, to trust equals follow. That's what it, that's what it equals. To trust, it equals follow. Look at verses 23 and and 24 in First Samuel chapter 12, these last couple of verses. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He's done for you. Only fear the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, it's to confess and to repent. And serve him faithfully with all your heart. What is that? Well, it's to follow him. This is the book, 1 Samuel. You may have heard this verse before, but this is the book where we hear the phrase, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To follow Christ, to follow God with your whole heart is better than to sacrifice. This this book, 1 Samuel, has 31 chapters in it. I find it fascinating that in 31 chapters Samuel talks about the heart 23 times 23 times it's that same story you'll hear this in a few weeks a couple of weeks when David is selected to be the king one of the things that happens is Samuel looks at David and goes this doesn't look like a king to me I mean Saul looked like Chris Hemsworth. he looked like Thor he looked like Chris Hemsworth he's a big guy he looks like a king David you're small <laughs> you're a little kid you don't look like a king and it's this book where we hear that God doesn't see as man sees. For God, for man looks at the outward appearance, but it's God that looks at the, at the heart. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. It simply means to follow him. One step after another. One moment after another. To move in a direction that honors him. To move closer to him each and every moment of each and every day. And that begins with this idea of who will you trust? Who will you trust? Will you trust him to lead you, to guide you, and to protect you? You know, Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says that we should guard our hearts with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says we should trust the Lord with all our and lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him. And what will happen? He'll direct our paths. You're one step away from the life you always wanted versus the life that's destroying you. And he will direct your paths. There's a song by a guy named Rich Mullins that I love. Rich Mullins passed away several years ago, but it's got an unusual name to it, and it's not one of his most popular songs, and you might know it, you might not, but the name of the song is The Maker of Noses, (laughs) Um, and so Rich Mullins, he was kind of a poet, and uh, uh, he just just had these interesting thoughts, but the chorus to Maker of Noses, I think, is really relevant to this idea of who will you trust. In the chorus, he says, "Uh, here's what they told me to do. They told me to follow my heart, They being the world. They told me to follow my heart, but my heart just led me into my chest. They told me to follow my nose, but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. They told me to follow my dreams, but my dreams were only misdirections. And this is my favorite part. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I've chosen, and I will follow him. And so really, that's the question ultimately for today. Will you follow him? He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. He's faithful to provide us everything we need for life and godliness. First Peter, second Peter, excuse me, first Peter chapter one. And so are you following your nose, your heart, or your dreams? Because he is the one and he is the way. Let me ask you if you would to bow your head and close your eyes for just a few moments. Over the next few minutes, we're going to have an opportunity to sing again. And as we sing, what this moment is really custom designed for is for us to respond not to my words, but to the word of God. You don't have to live the way the children of Israel lived, you can learn from their example. Today, during this invitation, what will you confess? Where will you turn? and who will you trust? If you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you wanna know what that means, you can come to the front and I would be glad to talk to you more about that. Maybe in this moment, as you've listened, you realize that your relationship with your spouse or with your kids or with a friend or with a family member is broken because you've been unwilling to confess to something. Well, maybe you need to leave this room and make a phone call. Maybe you need to take a moment right where you are to simply pray that God would move in this room and that he would let eternity break forth in this place and in the hearts of people and in the minds of people today. Maybe that's what you need to do during this moment. Maybe you need to come to this altar and just simply say, God, I wanna follow you. I've treated my faith as though it's a convenience and not something that's crucial. This altar, as we sing, will be open for all of those purposes. Today, you can magnify the faithfulness of God simply as you surrender. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your word that encourages us and challenges us and shows us exactly who you are. I pray that you would convict us of our sin, that through your kindness, you would lead us to repentance, that we would recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the way, he is the reason why we can come to you So today, for everyone in this room, I pray that we would leave this place when it's time closer to you because we've trusted in you and followed you. If there's someone here today who needs to place their faith in you, I pray that you would do that miraculous work in their life and that you would allow them to let someone know so that we can help them take their next step of faith. So Father, thank you for the song that we'll sing and for the opportunity we have to honor you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. As we stand, let's sing and respond.